Section 7 of Tin Horns and Calico by Henry Christman. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 7 Big Thunder. This newfound unanimity of the upstate farmers was the result of months of careful preparation. Dr. Boughton's East Manor Association now had 4,000 pledged members, the West Manor even more, and the Schoharie County membership was in the thousands but much remained to be done in the third week of may eighteen forty four five years almost to the day after helderberg farmers had sent their delegation to stephen the fourth a small group of anti-rent leaders from the three counties met at the home of john j gallup in east burn albany county those who attended must have included dr boughton and burton a thomas from the east manor and from Schoharie County, David L. Sternberg of Livingstonville, a tenant of Jacob Livingston, and Dr. John Cornell and John Mayham of Blenheim Hill, tenants of John A. King. Lawrence Van Dusen and Hugh Scott were probably waiting with Gallup when the men from the neighboring counties arrived. Though Thomas DeVere was not present, his influence was felt, and the proceedings were promptly reported to him by Gallup. The meeting had been called to discuss two urgent problems. The first was the strengthening of anti-rent ranks by extending the rebellion to all leasehold property in the state. To this purpose, John Mayhem was directed to finish organizing Blenheim Hill and then go down to Delaware County, where several landlords now owned portions of the old Hardenburg patent. Dr. Boughton was to continue to address as many meetings as he could, and Dr. Cornell was to speed the work wherever his professional calls took him. In general, the plan was to organize an association in each county, financed locally by an assessment of a cent and a half an acre, but functioning jointly with the others in emergencies. The second problem was to prevent the collection of rent and the repossession of farms by the landlords. Armed resistance to law was treason, but even at the risk of arrest, the anti-rent declaration of independence would have to be implemented with force to meet the threat of force, lest it lose all meaning. In an unpublished account, Dr. Boughton wrote, Our all was at stake. The law was on their side, and we were at their mercy. We resolved to adopt the same kind of protection resorted to by the people of Boston when the tea was thrown into the water of the bay. We raised in the counties a large force of men to prevent the landlords from executing their threats. This force was to be on hand to protect the tenants from legal hounds. They were to appear only on certain occasions. They were not to disturb the community in any other form. Socially or legally no one knew who they were, except the individuals. This force was to be used only until we could get judicial or legislative redress. The disguise agreed upon for the band of protesters was the calico Indian costume, symbol of the Boston Tea Party and reminder of the original ownership of the soil, which had already proved its efficacy in the rout of Bill Snyder. The tin dinner horn was adopted as the official Indian call to arms. At the first sharp blast, members were to drop work and hasten to a prearranged meeting place. Under no circumstances was a tenant to sound a horn for any other purpose. 
The organization of the Indian bands was to follow the cell structure which Thomas de Vere had helped devise for the Chartists in Newcastle. The identity of the ten or fifteen members of a unit was to be known only to the unit chief, who in turn was to be known only as Red Jacket, Yellow Jacket, Black Hawk, The Prophet, or a similar designation. The Indians were not to be interfered with, but left alone to transact their own business according to their own laws. Like the Chartists, they were bound by oath, secretly administered. I do, of my own free will and accord, come forward to join this body of men, promising in the presence of Almighty God that I will do all in my power to support the Constitution, that I will go at all times when deemed necessary, and will reveal no secrets of the society made known to me necessary to be kept. Some added the clause, and stand by each other as long as life lasts. Immediately after the meeting, tenants in the three counties hurried to the stores to buy calico. In many a farmhouse, close-mouthed wives and mothers ran up the seams of outlandish dresses for the menfolk. It is not known who made Dr. Boughton's, or where he kept it between meetings, but Mary Boughton was not among the women who shared the secret at that time. Soon a well-trained and disciplined army of about ten thousand men was ready for whatever might come. No two costumes were alike in color, style, or decoration, and their arms were makeshift and varied—muskets, pistols, spears, hatchets, and axes— cheese-knives, bits of scythes, and clubs. Some of the chiefs of the tribes were distinguishable by long dresses like women's nightgowns. Otherwise, the disguise was so complete that anecdotes were told about parents talking for hours with their own sons, and struggling sisters being overwhelmed with the unwelcome caresses of their own brothers, without the slightest suspicion of their identity. The first newcomers to the anti-rent movement were the farmers on Blenheim Hill in Schoharie County. John Mayhem had done good work among his neighbors, and John A. King, the absentee landlord, had unwittingly helped by serving notice on the tenants to resume their obligations toward him. Although the Blenheim title went back to 1788, King had acquired the property as late as 1830, when many of the tenants were in arrears. To save them the long trip to Albany, he had settled with them individually, accepting money rent, but many more had fallen behind since the hard times of 1837. Now, in a last-minute attempt to prevent the spread of anti-rentism among his tenants, he had made an appeal to their better natures. The first great principle of the moral law is to do as you would be done by, if I had dealt harshly with you, if I had exacted the last farthing, if I had shown by my conduct and actions that there was nothing in common between us, there might perhaps have been some reason for your listening to the advice of evil counsellors, to the influence and example of wrongdoers on other patents. From time to time for many years I have been among you, and never without those feelings of pride and confidence which was the result of relations which existed between us. My great aim and desire were to render you contented and happy, and I thought I had done so. He pointed out that he had listened to their stories of hardship, and had settled with each tenant upon terms which they admitted were liberal, and had even offered to sell at a fair price. 
whatever grievances other leasehold tenants had he was certain his own had none although in all fairness king an open-minded man and a friend of william h seward was a better landlord than most down-rent talk had been persistent on the backbone as blenheim was called ever since the helderberg uprisings in eighteen thirty nine many of the farmers had come originally from rensselaerwick stepping from one tyranny to another and most of them had strong ties with their helderberg neighbors the church had done its best to keep the backbone loyal to king but anti-rentism was being preached by such pillars of the church as uncle thomas peasley one of the best prayer leaders on the hill he had been born a van rensselaer tenant and was an anti-renter church or no church it is sinful to resist admonished the preacher one sunday as he sat down with uncle thomas over apples and fried cakes it is the devil's work at that peasley lost his temper rose from his chair and pounded the table with his big hand i am convinced sir that this matter of perpetual rent is wrong 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 he shouted but measured by the standards of de vere and boughton peasley and most of his neighbors were conservative when blenheim farmers gathered to form an anti-rent association dr cornell one of the most enlightened men on the backbone argued the radical line taken by dr boughton for years he had been talking anti-rentism and carrying in his pocket a copy of governor seward's indictment of feudalism to read as he made his professional rounds now he precipitated a stormy discussion by proposing that the tenants claim outright ownership of their farms on the ground that they had won it by the revolution which should have dissolved all patents issued by the british crown despite his eloquent appeal the tenants voted for a more moderate stand they asked only for laws that would enable them to purchase the land at a fair consideration after the landlord had proved title well shouted dr cornell taking the floor again i want to make one motion that will carry i move that we get together and have a poll raising i want to see a flag floating here bearing the words down with the rent there was a shout of approval the tallest and straightest pole that could be found was raised a few rods east of the brimstone church so named because of the sulphurous color it was painted blenheim hill was now in the anti-rent movement the farmers had agreed not to pay rent until the landlord proved his title and the indians began to drill in thomas peasley's back meadow the next to join was delaware county which was largely in the hands of the descendants of robert livingston the original hardenburg patent covered most of the county and parts of green ulster and sullivan the grant was made in seventeen o eight by governor cornbury a cousin of queen anne who managed to lime his own purse and feather the nests of his principal office holders cornbury himself represented by a dummy was one of the eight grantees of the vast estate between seventeen forty one and seventeen forty two he and three others sold their interests to robert livingston and julian verplanck in two later deals livingston enlarged his holdings to half a million acres remaining portions of the hardenburg patent went to other landlords including elias de Brosses. 
It has been estimated that Livingston paid an average of four cents an acre, though when the land was leased to settlers he fixed the value of the virgin land at three dollars an acre to establish a basis for reserved rents. Few of the farms were settled before 1790. After that, pioneers came in a steady stream, hauling their goods into the wilderness by ox-cart. As in Rensselaerwick, the first settlers picked the more fertile valleys, and later arrivals were crowded up into the hills and mountains, until about 128,000 acres were under lease. For that soil the rent exactions were hard, the severest being a day's service with team, two fat fowls, and twenty bushels of wheat for every one hundred acres. The habit of rigorous living made the Scotch-Irish Yankee tenants of Delaware County industrious farmers. Their dairy industry was unmatched anywhere in America. Many farmers packed as much as two tons of butter a year to be hauled over the mountains to Kingston and Catskill for shipping. Nothing in the character of these hillmen, many of them only one generation from revolutionary blood, prepared them to submit to economic or political slavery. A typical farmer of the region was Chauncey Burroughs, a conscientious, hard-working, old-school Baptist from Old Clump, whose son John, then a child of seven, was one day to become a famous naturalist. The Burroughs family occupied leasehold land one generation from the stump. They were sternly disciplined, dedicated to hard work the year round. Chauncey's grandfather, caught in post-revolutionary poverty, moved from Connecticut to Manor Land in the western Catskills, where his first home was a log-walled, bark-roofed house. His wife's grandfather Kelly had fought with Washington at Valley Forge, only to end up as a vassal of the good patroon. Escaping Van Rensselaer serfdom in 1808, the Kellys moved to the Catskills, but again found only leasehold land available to occupy. As with most Catskill families, theirs was a varied household. Martin Kelly was a hard-working farmer of fair intelligence, but his brother Zeke carried a gin bottle in his pocket, and after a short time of alternating between his bottle and his scythe, mowed stones as rapidly as grass, according to his nephew John. By 1844 all the Burroughses and Kellys were anti-renters. When John Mayhem came down to Thomas Keeter's house in Roxbury in June of that year to organize a Delaware County anti-rent association, he did not find the task too difficult. Tenant farmers from Dry Brook, Bray Hollow, West Settlement, and Roxbury were waiting to hear what he had to say, and to see the Indians he had brought with him from the backbone. Among those who had tramped in with dusty boots were Dr. Jonathan Alaben, of course, Chauncey Burroughs, and Martin Kelly, Daniel W. Squires, an intelligent, competent, and industrious farmer, and Warren Scudder, son of Deacon Jothan Scudder of West Settlement, these men, most of them tenants of the Debrosses, were all neighbors in the shadows of the mountains that rose east and west of Roxbury, and all were eager to challenge their landlord's titles on two scores. By testing the legality of Cornbury's corrupt use of his office, and by offering evidence that the original grantees had no right to any land west of the east branch of the Delaware, the grant had fixed the western boundary of the patent as 
a certain small river commonly known by the name of Cartwright's Kill. The tenants held that Cartwright's Kill was the east rather than the west branch of the Delaware, and that their farms were therefore outside the tract. So far, the landlord's only answer had been that no matter what the intention of the patent, it would not now be expedient, equitable, or just to seek to disturb the location after a lapse of 138 years. The crowd listened intently as John Mayhem told them how the other tenants were organized. His Indians stood by in full regalia, their faces covered by masks of grotesque ferocity, while he explained how they were prepared to resist evictions and prevent sheriff's sales. In conclusion, he called upon the farmers of Roxbury Township to withhold their rent and muster a similar protective army. Dr. Alaban approved. The Indians will keep off the bidders and not let them take the property away, he said. The Indians will give the landlords tar and feathers if they come to collect the rents. Before John Mayhem started for home, both Warren Scudder and Daniel W. Squires joined up with the Indians. Others set out for neighboring townships to recruit new members. William Brisbane of Andes was already an anti-renter. Now he became probably the ablest speaker in Delaware County. An intelligent, educated Scot, he had brought his wife to Dingle Hill in 1839, just as the anti-rent agitation gripped the Helderbergs, and immediately cast his lot with his down-rent neighbors. Another willing convert was Edwin O'Connor, a hot-blooded young man of twenty-five who lived in Bovina Valley. He stemmed from an Irish soldier who came to America and fought Indians at Schenectady. Among his cherished possessions were an ancestral broad-axe used to build Perry's fleet on Lake Erie, and the spurs of a rooster reputed to have crowed at the Battle of Champlain. Hence it was only natural that O'Connor should have been one of the first in Bovina to join up. June 1844 was a lively month for organizing. Between planting time and harvesting, the farmers were comparatively free, and the roads were fit for travel. Delaware anti-renters went over the mountain with five hundred Indians to Pine Hill Clove, Ulster County, where some five thousand tenants from half a dozen towns between Woodstock and Shandiken had gathered. The result of the meeting was another anti-rent association. The movement swept the Catskills and spread into Green and Sullivan counties. Someone wrote a song about a squaw who gave birth to ten full-grown Indians, symbolic of the rapid growth and strength of the tenant army. Printed handbills, identical in text but with local dates and meeting places written in, were hung in taverns and on roadside trees. The following is an example of the accompanying text. Attention! Anti-renters, awake, arouse! Let the opponents of patroonery rally in their strength. A great crisis is approaching. Now is the time to strike. The minions of patroonery are at work. Arouse, awake, and strike till the last armed foe expires. Strike for your altars and your fires. Strike for the green graves of your sires, God and your happy homes. Another statement distributed in the Manor Counties read, 
better far better to die fighting for liberty than to live under patroon or aristocratic control or bondage the organization of the indian armies aroused a great deal of antagonism among conservative people everywhere francis parkman the historian witnessed a conclave at steventown rensselaer county some time in the summer of eighteen forty four although in his opinion the feudal tenures were strangely out of place in america he disapproved violently of the tenants methods i have never seen a viler concourse in america he wrote of the calico army he told of encountering an old man who had been with the indians and kept constantly talking of their friendship for him perfuming all near with the stench of his filthy rotten teeth another old fool with a battered straw hat and a dirty shirt for his only upper garment kept retailing his grievance lashing himself into enthusiasm and exclaiming down with the rent the historian watched the indians maneuver on the hill they stuffed gunpowder into a hollow block of cast iron hammered in a plug and fired it repeatedly then came the speeches a few of the more decent parkman reported squatted themselves on the bank of grass before the platform but were listless and inattentive those loudest in their noise were not the number on the bank the voice of the old man with the straw hat could be heard declaiming and sharply exclaiming down with the rent while the rest were eating or watching the clumsy and absurd movements of the indians parkman's picture was realistic but superficial education and cultural opportunity were the privilege of the few it was true but he had missed all the significance of the demonstration of unity and democracy in action down the river in new york city james gordon bennett of the herald was alarmed by the reports of the farmers armies regularly drilled at stated times to the number of many hundred rival newspapers were at fault of course notably those edited by thurlow weed and horace greeley this insurrectionary spirit of the mountaineers commented the herald is stimulated by the tribune organ of the fourierites the fanatics the agrarians and ragtag and bobtail bennett accused greeley of leading the tenants to believe that their claim was better than their landlords and that man had a constitutional right to oppose oppression by force while greeley never brought himself to defend the indians he never doubted the justice of the farmers cause so he replied with an indignant editorial which said in part there is another right in the manor besides the right of the van rensselaers a right surely recognized in the chancery of heaven though not that in new york there is some right in those whose hard toil has made the lands what they are as well as those who hold the old dutch patent greeley saw no justice in permitting a handful of landlords to say in effect you can only be allowed to work here on condition that you will allow us in the shape of rents price of land or depressed wages one-half or three-fourths of the entire product of your toil william cullen bryant's evening post fretted over the indian monopoly on tin-horn blowing deeming it to be an infringement of individual liberty if the housewife should be so indiscreet as to use this method of calling laborers from the fields at noon 
the anti-rent leaguers come in a crowd and eat up the dinner prepared for her family. The press, observed an anti-renter sagely, never offered any opinion unless it had been tested upon the procrustean bed of party policy. As the threat of evictions grew, Dr. Boughton knew the time was not far off when the Indians would have to act. Handbills were scattered throughout the East Manor, in Alps, Sand Lake, Berlin, Steventown, Dunham's Hollow, and Nassau, calling the Indians for an Independence Day drill and parade on the plain below Hogue's Corners. The public was invited, and it was to be a gala event, with an address by Big Thunder. Big Thunder was the chief of all the Indians. When he went through the manors, the other chiefs saluted him, and his words were on every tenant's lips. His magic voice, his warm confidence and sound argument, had drawn many into the ranks of anti-rentism. His rustic eloquence, his oratorical thrusts at patroonery, never failed to rouse the down-renters. The scheduled appearance of Big Thunder spread excitement in the hill-towns of Rensselaer County. Mary Boughton's curiosity was aroused by snatches of conversation she heard. Since diversions were few, and all her friends were going, she made up her mind to ask her husband to take her with him. She and the baby saw very little of him these days, but she knew that he was deeply concerned with the farmer's struggle, and that he often went to such meetings. On the morning of the conclave, the doctor pulled on his leather boots and strode to the barn. Mary's spirits sank as he strapped on his medicine bags and rode off down the road, without saying a word about the rally. The day wore on. She watched the wagons and carriages rumbling past on the way to the drill grounds. Still the doctor did not return. Mary Boughton decided to go alone. She hitched up old Bill to the buggy, and with her baby son beside her, drove off down the dusty road. Below Hogue's Corners, a temporary platform had been erected in a natural amphitheatre, backed by the rounded dome of a hill. A crowd was milling in the field around the platform, the farmers talking in little groups, the women gossiping about the Indians and wondering whether any of their own families belonged. Suddenly a rolling tattoo sounded on the drums, a fife shrilled, and the crowd fell silent. Horses mounted by men in fantastic dress sprang from the woods, galloped across the field, and circled the crowd, dancing. Spears and tin pans clattered noisily. War-whoops rocketed up to the hills and rolled back. Tin horns blared above the bedlam. Gradually the Indians quieted, and drew up at attention before the platform. There was silence for a moment. Then a tall Indian rose in his saddle, threw an agile leg over, dropped to the ground, and tossed his reins to an unmounted Indian waiting for them. The crowd could see his brilliantly colored calico dress and gay pantaloons that billowed below his knees. His head was decked with colored feathers, and his mask was very colored with war-paint. There was no doubt that this was Big Thunder. He sprang to the platform, turned and lifted his hands, waiting for silence. Then, in a clear, eloquent voice that almost sang under the summer hills, he began to speak. Brother serfs of Lord Van Rensselaer, these Indians have a battle-cry that means your safety and your future. Down with the rent, 
Mary Boughton caught her breath. Faces in the crowd blurred. Big thunder became a shadow. She grasped her full skirt with one hand, held her baby close with the other, and stumbled back to the buggy. Urging old Bill to a gallop, she was gone in a swirl of dust. She had recognized her husband's voice. When Dr. Boughton turned in at his own gate that night, a candle was burning in the sitting-room. Mary was waiting for him. Her devotion to the handsome white-haired doctor, fear for his safety, worry over the welfare of their child in their home, terror of the power of the Van Rensselaers, all clamored for expression. Smith Boughton must have felt that converting a farmer to anti-rentism was a simple task compared to the one that faced him now. He told his wife the history of the settlement of the manor, an island of old-world tyranny in the new world of free men, and reminded her that men had died for liberty. He explained the stranglehold of the manor lords on the courts and the legislature, the tenants' need for leadership, and their determination to fight the battle through whatever the cost. The doctor and his sweet-faced young wife did not end their talk until dawn speared the darkness of the room. But when at last they lay down to rest, Big Thunder had won his hardest recruit. Mary Boughton would never falter in loyalty to her husband's cause. Delaware County, too, had its Fourth of July celebration, an organizing meeting at Andes, with two hundred Indians drilling in front of the platform. It proved to be a major political triumph, for General Erastus Root came over from Delhi to attend. In fifty years of public service, General Root had been a forthright foe of privilege and a scourge of meaner politicians. Since 1798 he had served at intervals in the state legislature and in Congress, in 1830 the Working Man's Party had offered him the nomination for governor, which he had declined on the realistic ground that there was no chance of being elected. It was both a commentary on the justice of the farmers' struggle and a tribute to their leaders that the general so willingly lent his prestige to this organizing drive. The unsophisticated and uncompromising farmers of Delaware County brought to the Anti-Rent Association a hard determination to win. Even women were sworn into the association, not indeed that they might be permitted to wear calico and bear arms in this crusade against the foe, reported the Albany Argus, but that they might be honored dressmakers and ornamenters of masks for their husbands, sons, or lovers, the brave heroes. While all other associations kept to the fiction that there was no connection between the Indian Army and the legitimate anti-rent associations, and refused to allow disguises and guns to be purchased with anti-rent funds, the Delaware farmers increased their assessment to two cents an acre and opened up the treasury to meet all underground as well as open expenses. The association treasurer bought forty dollars worth of calico and sheepskins in one lot, and distributed the material among a half-dozen leading anti-renters for dresses and masks, taking enough to his own home to make seven or eight outfits. Before he would allow his wife and daughter to cut and stitch them, however, he first administered the oath not to divulge any secrets. No effort was spared to make this organization effective. 
the Indians of Delaware County were compensated for time lost on military duty, and the housewives who fed the calico soldiers were often paid by the association. It was not long before their little army was called into action. On the side of Old Clump, not far from the borough's farm, lived a stiff-necked old farmer named John Gould, who was a Tory and an uprenter. Gould consistently defied the anti-rent war order, declining to stop blowing his dinner-horn to call his workmen into meals. On July 6th, five Indians, armed for a fight, arrived at the Gould farm, and demanded redress for his insult to the authority of the association. John Gould refused, and as his son Jay, then eight years old, remembered years later, the Indians were compelled to retreat to the tune of the old king's arm and shell. The offending blasts of John Gould's horn continued to sound against Old Clump. In a few days the band came back with instructions to seize the gun and the horn, and, if necessary, meet out to Mr. Gould a salutary coat of tar and feathers. It was midday when the signal whoop was given, and the calico horde sprang from hiding places. With frightful yells they rushed up and surrounded Mr. Gould, who was standing in front of his house with his little son. Jay Gould recalled in his History of Delaware County, We are that son, and how bright the picture is still retained upon the memory of the frightful appearance they presented as they surrounded that parent with fifteen guns pointed within a few feet of his head, while the chief stood over him with fierce gesticulations and sword drawn. Oh, the agony of my youthful mind, as I expected every moment to behold him prostrate a lifeless corpse upon the ground! His doting care and parental love had endeared him to his family. But he stood his ground firmly, he never yielded an inch. Conscious of right, he shrank from no sense of fear, and finally, when a few neighbors had gathered together, a second time they were driven from the premises without the accomplishment of their object. The Indians marched off the premises and down the road in single file. One quite different report has another ending. They smeared him with tar, and then, ripping open a pillow, plastered him with feathers. In his Fourth of July speech, Big Thunder had warned the East Manor farmers that William Van Rensselaer was ready to attack. The sheriff of Rensselaer County, Gideon Reynolds, had always been sympathetic toward the anti-renters. A native of rural Petersburg, near Grafton, Reynolds had been elected by farmers' votes, and he was a friend of Dr. Boughton. As long as he dared, he had ignored the complaints of the Van Rensselaer agents that $200,000 in back rents was due in the East Manor. But he could not stall off the action forever. On July 24, 1844, the landlord's lawyers handed him several writs to be served on anti-rent leaders in the neighborhood of Alps, the most rebellious area of the East Manor. Reynolds took the papers reluctantly, and permitted himself to be turned back by a small band of Indians near Steventown, above Alps. The next morning a posse of thirty rattled out of Troy on the road to Alps in a train of carriages. Tin horns relayed the warning, and as the sheriff's party neared the village they were waylaid by one hundred and twenty disguised men armed with pistols, knives, and tomahawks. 
horses were unhitched and set loose on the road the deputies were dragged from the carriages bound and marched for more than a mile to the centre of the village where they were searched more and more indians arrived until about six hundred surrounded the officers sheriff reynolds forewarned perhaps had been more than ordinarily sagacious no papers were found on him deputy sheriff george b allen was less fortunate however and the calico chief sentenced him to be tarred and feathered sheriff reynolds protested reminding the disguised men of their professed love of law and order and their duty as citizens and warned them that such rioting would result in punishment and disgrace the chief probably dr boughton appreciated the dilemma in which reynolds found himself but explained patiently that his men had agreed in council that the first men carrying papers relating to the tenants should meet with such treatment while the indians whooped blue horns and fired guns allen's coat and vest were taken off and his shirt pantaloons and collar thoroughly tarred and feathered tar was poured down the back of his neck until it flowed into his boots then the party was allowed to depart reynolds served no more papers himself but called in deputy sheriff jacob lewis the natives promptly forestalled any attempt at service by descending on lewis's home in skodak at midnight seizing his papers and burning them publicly at a powwow in the centre of the village and then the following day when lewis talked too boastfully of retaliation the indians returned in the night dragged him from his bed and in the presence of his family threatened him with tar and feathers finally according to the journal of commerce of new york he was compelled to run around the town pump and up and down the streets for the amusement of his persecutors incensed by these indignities william van rensselaer's agents in troy compelled sheriff reynolds to appeal to governor bouck for troops the political controversy that had raged about seward's head five years before now broke out around william c bouck with the party rolls reversed the whig press once apologist for seward now demanded immediate military interference the democratic press forgot its bitter attacks on seward and defended bouck for refusing to be coerced the governor's answer to critics was typical of the former canal commissioner on august tenth eighteen forty four he set out for west sand lake to meet directly with the east manor anti-renters and find out whether it was possible to mediate the roads were hot and dusty that summer day the fields were tinted with the gold of new-shocked grain and the smell of hay drifted from open barns as the coach jolted past william van rensselaer's new manor house which he called beaverwick after the old trading post the governor must have thought back to his own farm in schoharie county and perhaps longed for the simplicity and peace of a farmer's life when he arrived in west sand lake a cannon volley roared a salute and three thousand farmers and two hundred indians assembled to greet him a platform stood in front of the church and banners hung from the village houses some displayed the figure of an indian and others the devere slogan for the land is mine saith the lord from the village flagpole a rippling banner proclaimed down with the rent 
the indians presented a most comical and grotesque appearance the albany atlas reported adding that the language spoken was the common vernacular mouthed with a strange intonation with an occasional sprinkling of dutch governor boak went directly to the home of burton thomas the anti-rent corresponding secretary where he conferred with tenant leaders while the crowd waited in the road it was mid-afternoon before the church bell gave the signal that the governor was about to mount the platform it was not he who addressed the crowd however he merely sat quietly on the platform while joseph gregory president of the east manor association reported on their conference they had proposed to the governor gregory said that the question of the validity of the van rensselaer title should be arbitrated by the governors of any three new england states connecticut excepted governor boke had demurred on the ground that the governors were common men like himself none of them lawyers except governor briggs of massachusetts and they were therefore not a whit more competent to decide gregory said the governor had no intention of ordering the military to occupy the county that it was the attorney-general's considered opinion that the sheriff had not exerted his entire power and until he had the governor could do nothing in the matter as gregory could not judiciously announce though the sheriff was not to be allowed a free hand to use the full power of the county the anti-renters had told the governor that the masked bands were only an expedient to restrain the landlord from making wholesale evictions invited by the judiciary committee report until the tenants could get a fair hearing they were confident they would be able to elect their own men to the next legislature if the sheriff would leave them alone until that time they could pledge that there would be no more rioting but if writs of eviction continued to be served the farmers would not sacrifice their only weapon before their strength had time to reach to the poles in order to give them this respite governor boke agreed to direct the sheriff to serve no more processes without first consulting the attorney-general and the justices of the supreme court for all of his plain ways boke handled this delicate situation with skill he succeeded in undercutting the force of the landlord-inspired judiciary committee report and taking control of the situation like a statesman when the strategy became clear the farmers congratulated themselves that all the governor lacked of being an indian was the calico sheriff reynolds probably glad of official relief from landlord pressure went immediately to the governor to find out what was expected of him according to the troy whig the governor told him to do nothing until he heard from him because he had opened negotiations with the anti-renters the consummation of which might be defeated by any action on the sheriff's part weeks passed without any further word from Bouk. meanwhile discouraged over the future and alarmed by threatening letters william p van rensselaer left beaverwick and took up temporary residence beyond the reach of the anti-renters other landlords took the attitude that the governor's truce applied only to the tenants of william p van rensselaer in the east manor across the river in the west manor stephen the fourth relentlessly continued his efforts to bring his tenants to terms on august thirtieth 
Christopher Batterman, the handsome middle-aged sheriff of Albany County, drove up West Mountain with three deputies, among them Daniel Leonard, who still smarted from the encounter in which he was forced to burn his writs and buy drinks for everybody. Batterman carried two pistols, and his companions a rifle and a pistol apiece. Despite their watchfulness, the blast of a tin horn in the bushes startled their horses. Before the men could bring their weapons into use, they were surrounded by Indians, dragged from their wagon, relieved of their arms, and bound. "'What would you do if you had us in your power?' demanded the chief, as if to determine what sentence to impose. "'I'd kill you as quick as I would a black snake,' Batterman retorted. But the masked men had other plans. They burned his papers, and, as he later told Governor Bouck, threw him on the ground and threatened his life. Buckets of warm tar were brought up, and he was tarred and feathered, a victim of the vilest indignities and most barbarous cruelties, in the opinion of the Albany advertiser. According to the version which appeared with cartoons in the London Illustrated News, the deputies were compelled to jump into the air three times while hallooing down with the rent. Batterman was placed in his wagon, bound hand and foot, and his horses started on their way home. Accusing the sheriff of defying the governor, the West Manor Indians met at Alps and voted a $500 reward to any man or body of men who would bring Sheriff Batterman across the river to the big tree in Maumee Swamp. But for the rest of the year, Batterman kept a safe distance from any leasehold territory. A few days later, there was a similar incident in Delaware County. The farmers had responded so vigorously to anti-rent agitation that the New York Evening Post reported, It is believed that by fall every tenant will have joined the association. Indeed, life and property are both in danger in case of refusal to respond to the cry of down with the rent, and the articles by which these bands of disorganizers are held together. The correspondent added that so much time had been spent in organizing that in some districts the cultivation of the land was entirely neglected and even the grass remained uncut. However exaggerated the foregoing picture might be, Sheriff Green Moore of Delaware County could not have been unprepared that day in early September when he and Timothy Corbin set out for Roxbury with landlord writs. Perhaps the DeBrosses' agent thought that there might be tenant defections if he succeeded in serving papers in the very birthplace of Delaware County anti-rent disturbance. Perhaps he hoped the tenants would resist with violence, which would provide an excuse for new demands for state aid. At any rate, as soon as Sheriff Moore reached Roxbury, a party of Indians relieved him of his papers, and then, because he was thought to be sympathetic at heart, he was let go. Timothy Corbin, who was one of the landlord's trusted aides, was handled less gently. He had left Moore only a few minutes before, and started up Bray Hollow to serve writs, in the peace of God and of the people of New York State. Horns began to blow, but by the time the Indians had gathered at the meeting place, Corbin had run his horse down Bray Mountain. Martin Kelly advised the Indians to catch him at all events, shoot his horse down, if he can't be taken any other way, break an arm or a leg. The men captured Corbin peacefully, however, some time later, 
not far from the home of Daniel W. Squires. For an hour Tim Corbin had been telling Squires, a staunch down-renter and himself an Indian, that the landlord was bound to win. Then, behold, a band of Indians came sculping rank and file over the fields and led poor Tim to a spot selected for the ceremony, mounting him on something like a soap-box, and served him out with tar and feathers until he was sure he was not himself. Corbin reported that the men did seize and lay hold of, and then and there pull, haul, drag, blindfold, beat, strike, kick, tar and feather, and ill-treat him. The last they saw of him that day, he had scraped off some of his coat of tar, and was on his way to Albany to tell the governor how naughty these Indians had been. End of Section 7 Recording by Maria Casper